The Word of God today is from Acts chapter 11. We're finishing out the chapter. And we're going to be reading verses 19 through 30. And this is actually a topic that's really dear to my heart. Um, just because growing up as an Asian American, it was very difficult when I was younger in my middle school and high school years um, in determining what exactly is my identity. Am I a Korean? Am I an American? Um, what am I? Uh, when I went to Korea, my, the, my Korean peers um, told me to go home. <laughs> when I was in my suburban, suburban community, my non-Korean friends would tell me to go home. <laughs> and so it was very difficult. Uh, to really figure out who I was. Um, this passage speaks directly into those struggles, and it provides a very liberating answer to the problem of self-identity. And so I invite you to look with me at what, the Lord, at what the Word of God supplies as an answer and a response to the problem of answering the question, who am I? Let's read the word of God together. I'll read it out loud as you follow along silently. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of God. Let's do a thought experiment, shall we? We're talking about identity. So I'm going to give you a list of characteristics, and you guys try to figure out what it is. Okay? You don't have to say it out loud, but if the Spirit of God compels you, sure, why not? Okay? It's okay. Right? Um, the first item has these three characteristics. Blue, cap and gown, pomp, and circumstance. Graduation, right? Graduation. Um, the next one has these four characteristics. Fizzy, brown, red and white, Alana. Oh, someone knows it. Coca-Cola. <laughs> right? <laughs> Are these characteristics not that great? 
Number three, everyone's going to get this, I think. Omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and triune. Some of you has like, really? <laughs> God, right? God. Um, now, <clears throat> most, if not all of you, could figure those things out. If not for the deficiency of my characteristics, right? Sometimes my characteristics could have been a little better, right? Um, but considering, if you, the point is this, if you saw a number of marks or characteristics or attributes, would you, what would you be defined by, right? In your life, if there were these attributes that were consistent and prominent in the way that you live your life, what would you be defined by? Right? And the challenge that I'm giving you guys today is the challenge that I had and that I have every day is to be defined by grace, which is the title of today's sermon, being defined by grace. One of the greatest reliefs to my identity struggles that I had growing up was given by a pastor that would come every other Friday. We had Friday meetings. And he would come from Philadelphia to our church in New York, and he would preach to us. And it was it was just every Friday every Friday he came, it was just a message of grace, and power, and gospel transformation. It just always broke our hearts um, with the gospel. And I remember him saying so powerfully one of those nights, just a typical Friday night that you wouldn't even expect anything out of the ordinary from. He said, before you are Korean, we were a Korean church. I was part of a Korean church. Before you are Korean and before you are an American, you have to remember you are, an, you are a Christian. And that began the journey of identity solidification for me in my heart and in my mind. And it began a process of clarity um, that couldn't be reversed. And I want to tell you that in everything that you can be defined by, your core identity, the one most powerful, the one most purposeful and meaningful, and the one that is most lasting, and also most universal across cultures and backgrounds and types and kinds of people is this identity. Um, how do you recognize this kind of identity? This identity that is based upon grace. An identity that is based upon not a race or a geographical region, not a cult, not through cultural values right, or dispositions, but an identity that reaches into the core of every man and woman alive, whether past, present, or future. What kind of an identity can speak so universally, so profoundly, so diversely, and yet so unitedly, uniformly? And that is the identity of grace. And I want to give you three marks of a grace-defined identity that is found in this passage. Number one, repentance. Number two, discipleship. 
And number three, mercy. Repentance, discipleship, and mercy. Let's look at repentance. If you look in verse 19, there's persecution. Now, the way that you can think about and look at and understand persecution is that it's something that shouldn't happen because it's an injustice. It's harm that be, that's being done against people who do no harm, typically. And so persecution is seen as an interruption in the flow of life and time. It's something that shouldn't exist. And in one sense, you'd be right. Persecution shouldn't exist. But God is so sovereign, and the way he works is so above human endeavors, human uh, corruption, human uh, exercise and author of authority, that God can even use persecution for his glory and for the good of his people, right? When you look in verse 19, the disciples are being persecuted and they're being scattered. And you're thinking, this is bad. Now, what are the negative things that may come about? That if we face persecution today, and if we were scattered, what, was, what would be some of the things that we would consider bad and negative? One of them would be separation from the people that you love and know. Another would be the loss of comfort and uh, familiarity, right? Everything becomes foreign and strange. You become a fish out of water. And you're finding yourself that you need to start over again when it comes to social ties. You once knew a city like the back of your hand. But because of persecution, because of this thing that shouldn't happen, now you have to start your life from scratch. You have to make new friends. You have to build a new family. You have to build a new life when you had a good thing going. Not only that, there is forced displacement. It's one thing to go to Chicago or New York or LA or where Atlanta, right? It's one thing to go to these places because you want to go, because you want to start over. It's another thing to be forced there. Right? It's a totally different experience. Moving doesn't become enjoyable, right? Uh, you Looking for a job doesn't become exciting, right? Um, you meeting up with people is filled with anxiety. Now, what are the positive things that was going on during this time? The positive thing is that the saving power of the gospel was not being kept within just a small group of Jews but it was expanding to Judea. Think of it as if there is an, a disease that is killing off the human race, and you have, you have a cure. And instead of a small selective group of people keeping that cure for themselves, you have all these people who, because of persecution, are taking that cure with them and sharing it with everybody who's infected. Think of that, right? And you will, you will start to see how important that is and what a positive thing that is. You see, one of the ways that God caused his gospel to expand is through persecution. That's the deep and the unexpected and the amazing way that our God works. And we heard uh, last week 
when Pastor Billy was preaching. The title of his sermon was called Called to Suffer. Called to Suffer. That's exactly what's going on here. God is calling them to suffer. Can you imagine going to college and you're looking through the list of majors? Okay, those of you in college, how many of you guys, no, you don't need to raise your hand. How many of you guys, you can, you can raise your metaphorical hands, right? How many of you guys know your major, right? How many of you guys know your major? Or those of you out of college, how many of you guys knew what you would major in first day of college as a freshman, right? Um, you know, sometimes God has things planned even though you don't really have it all together, right? Um, God can use something that you do not expect to be a good thing, but he can use it for good, right? Now, when the gospel is reaching out and spreading, the gospel and evangelism didn't begin with the person repenting. That's not where the gospel began, where evangelism began. The gospel didn't begin with the people who took the gospel to these different cities because of persecution. It didn't even begin there. Okay? It began with the plan of God. So God had a plan and he put it into motion. Right? And a person hearing the gospel and repenting isn't the beginning of repentance as far as the cause of what brings about that repentance, right? It begins with God who ordains these events and these circumstances and these people to interact or not interact in such a way that a person or people group hears the gospel and repents. And that's the thing about being defined by grace. And the first point of that being repentance is that you are basically admitting that you are not in control. You are not in control. And that is the first mark of grace, that you have no control over your moral lives. There is nothing you can do to justify yourself and for God to say, yes, you have been morally excellent on your own, and therefore I accept you. Okay? very different from an ethical lifestyle that basically says, hey, I made, the cho I made the right choices, so why can't you? There must be something wrong. What's wrong with you? You must be lazy. You must be not committed enough. There must be something that you did wrong. But you see, that's a moral, ethical philosophy and worldview that says, I'm in control. And the reason why you're not where I am is because you chose to lose control. That's on you. That's your fault. But you see, being marked by grace is completely different. You're saying, I am not in control. But God is in control of my life. It's completely different, right? That theme of not being in control in the, under, in the theme of repentance is included in the inclusion of Gentile converts. In verses 20 through 21, we see that Gentiles are coming to, the God, to, to salvation. They're believing in Jesus Christ. And it's because some Jews, now we said it's the plan of God, but at the same time, when you look at verses 20 through 21, 
Yes, God preordained it. He set it up. He put it into motion. But at the same time, there is human choice to evangelize because there were some Jews who were preaching the gospel, preaching, the, preaching Jesus Christ to Gentiles, while there were other Jews who weren't. Okay? There was a choice there. They weren't robots. You can't, you can't say that, well, God ordained it that way, so therefore it's not my fault, but it's God's fault. He should, have, he should have established it another way so that I would evangelize or I would do that. But preaching is something that they chose to do, right? When you look at the word preaching, in English, you have, you have an active voice, right? And a passive voice. When you have an active voice, you are doing the action, the subject, the main subject is performing the action. When you have a passive voice, the action is being done unto you. In Greek, there is another one. It's called the middle voice. And the middle voice is when you do something on your own. And when that middle voice is used, it's very specific. It's not accidental. It's not by mistake. That middle voice, when it's used, it's emphasizing that the person made a choice for himself, right? So you see, on the one hand, if you're seeing a paradox, it's, it's good that you're seeing a paradox. Because the question is, is, in, is God in control or am I in control, right? And the answer is, it's both. It's both, right? God is in full control, and yet you have the human responsibility to make the right choices, right? Um, preaching is in the middle voice, and it shows and it emphasizes the fact that these Jews, they chose to tell the Gentiles of the gospel, right? And they were from Cyprus and Cyrene, which were non-Jewish locations, but there were Jews living there, right? So they were kind of foreigners. They were kind of getting used to the Greek and Roman culture. And they were the ones who gave the gospel to the Gentiles the first time around. Okay? So they were part of that culture. And in verse 21, what you see there is that the hand of the Lord was behind all this. What is that? What is the hand of the Lord? Right? Basically, when you look in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the hand of the Lord can be negative or positive. The hand of the Lord can be something that, uh, that references God being against you, or it can be something that references God doing something for you. So he can be either against your side or for on your side, right? And here, it's on your side. Essentially, whether it be negative or positive, it's basically saying God was in control, right? And... What it's saying here is that there were people who were believing and they were turning to the Lord and it was the hand of the Lord that was doing that. So in one sense, yes, being a Christian is being marked by repentance. We cannot be arrogant before God and before others morally, right? We have to admit we're not in control. And yet, at the same time, we cannot relinquish our human responsibility to obey God's gospel truth, right? 
You have, repentance is both and. You're looking at God being in control, God giving you the gift of salvation, Him granting you repentance, and at the same time, you committing to living a life of repentance before God. Right? And that commitment to live a life of repentance before God is also a gift from God. It is not something you muster up from yourself because you just know the Bible well and because you just make the right moral choices. It's because God has given you. For whatever reason that you don't understand, he has given you the willing heart and the willing mind to live in repentance before God. And that is the definition of a humble life. Right? That is a mark of grace. Right? Repentance. Um, now, some of the more perceptive listeners among you may feel like, well, if there are those who believe without turning to, uh, if, there, if there are those who believe and turn to the Lord, are there those who believe but do not turn to the Lord? If you're kind of confused, all you have to do is look at verses, um, verse 21 and see what I'm talking about there, right? So there are these people who believe. And many of them, it says, many of the people who believe, they turn to the Lord. Now, the flip side, this part that's not stated, is saying, well, if many of the people who believe turn to the Lord, are there a few number of people who believe but didn't turn to the Lord? What's going on there? Right? Aren't we saved by faith? Aren't we saved by believing? Yes, we are. But let's take a look at James 2, 19 through 20. If you want to turn there, please do. If you want to just sit and listen, that's fine. James 2, 19 through 20 says, you believe that God is one. He's addressing his audience, and they have a right theology. They believe that God is one. One of the most core te- uh, principles of Judaism and Christianity, God is one, right? You believe that God is one. You do well. He's basically saying, hey, you believe, you, you have a right theology. Good. That's really good. And what he adds, he says, even the demons believe and shudder. And what he's saying is, you have a right theology? Good. You should. But you know what? Even demons have a right theology. But they do something that you don't do. They fear God. And what James is basically saying here, as he continues into verse 20, He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart works is useless? What he's basically saying is that you have a right theology, good, but does your life reflect that right theology? Do you live in accordance with what you believe about God? And he says, even the demons can have a right theology, but they show that they fear God. They shudder. They're terrified of God. But you, when you say you believe God, and yet you don't live according to his commandments. You don't fear him at all. It's very convicting, right? And what he's saying is, there are those who can believe, meaning there are those who can mentally and cerebrally agree with what the Bible teaches, and yet their heart and their entire life action does not reflect any of what's going on here. right? So faith is not just theological consent or agreeing. Faith is right theology, right living. You can't have one over the other. Okay? If you just have right living, that's moralism and legalism. If you just have right theology, that's deadness. 
Faith without works is dead, James says, right? Repentance, right? Repentance is this, is, is basically saying, I am not in control, you are in control. Since you're in control, God, since that is the right theology, I will live my life in accordance with your authority and control. Okay? First mark of grace. Secondly, discipleship. In verses 22 through 26, and this part was especially, it hit me close. Uh, it hit me at my heart and my past experience because I, I can't help but make connections with the first and second generation Asian American church. Okay? Now, when you look at verse 22 through 26, you see that the mother church, which is the church in Jerusalem, they send Barnabas to verify what's going on in Antioch with the Gentiles, right? And once Barnabas gets there, he sees, it says, the scripture says, he, he witnesses the grace of God. So he actually saw grace. What does that mean? Right? Well, what that means is he saw these marks that I'm telling you about. Repentance, discipleship, and mercy. Right? Um, when he saw it, Barnabas, he rejoiced. And he encouraged them saying, yes, yes, this is exactly what the gospel is. Continue to live your life this way. And, he, and it says that he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He calls Saul. Right? He goes to Tarsus. He finds Saul. And he calls Saul and he's saying, you have to come to Antioch because there's some amazing things going on here. God is doing, he is moving in some amazing ways. And so Saul comes to see what's going on. And of course, he stays for a year. So you have Barnabas and Saul for an entire year. They're in Antioch. And what are they doing? They're discipling them. They're teaching them what it means to live by grace, what it means to be a Christian right? Discipleship. Sometimes, sometimes in the immigrant church, in first and second generation congregations, sometimes the second generation will blame the first generation, say, you give us no mentorship, you don't disciple us, you just kind of throw us into a space and there's nothing, <laughs> right? And then the first generation, they'll, they'll tell the second generation congregation and say, you guys never want to do anything. We ask you to do stuff, but you guys, never, you guys never commit to anything, right? There's this issue here, right? Um, and then sometimes second generation churches, they'll be, or congregations, they'll be, they will not want to learn from the first generation because they have an accent, because they don't really understand what it really means to grow up in America. I mean, in some ways, you're right. A second generation congregation, yeah, in some ways, they're right. They don't really understand. Even in our passage, you had, gen you had Jews who were more Hellenized, right? Not Helen, but Hellenized, right? Or Helen over there, too. We have two Helens, right? But they, they were more Greek-like in their culture and in their language. They spoke Greek and not just Hebrew and Aramaic. And so they were more Hellenized. And it was these Hellenistic Jews, right, that went to the Greeks with the gospel here in this passage, right? So in other words, in our context, that would be like someone who knows an Asian language and 
English, going to only English speakers and giving the gospel to them. That's basically what that is, right? And so in one sense, yeah, it's right. But in another sense, to say that just because they, just because they have an accent, the first generation, they have an accent, or they don't really understand what we're going through, and to say, refuse to submit yourself to their mentorship and to their discipleship, that's not a mark of grace. That's a mark of arrogance, right? It's a mark of I'm in control, and I know better than what God is doing, than what the hand of the Lord is doing in our midst, right? And of course, on the first generation side, the first generation should also understand where we're coming from and also give the gospel in such a way that would be not palatable, um, but in a way that we can really absorb it for what it is, right? And really understand and connect heart to heart. Now, discipleship is extremely important. And this is why... This is why it's important. It was important for the church in Antioch to have this validation by the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem, the mother church, had to verify that what was going on in Antioch among the Gentile converts was actually legit. Okay? You need that. If the, if the church in Antioch said, we don't need you, Jerusalem, because God is moving away from you and he's moving in our midst now. So we don't need you. If, we, if they took that approach, there would not be this cohesion that you see in the book of Acts. Right? We need each other. Right? We need each other. Um, lastly, mercy. This is amazing, by the way. Right? And I'm going to finish up with this. Mercy. The third mark of grace. Right? Repentance, discipleship, and mercy. There's a spirit-revealed need. There are prophets from Jerusalem, from the mother church, who came to Antioch and said, there's going to be a famine. It's going to cover the entire known Roman Empire world. Right? And this is how the second generation believers respond. They hear of this, and each of them, verses 29 through 30, determined to send relief, right? And they gave to Paul and Barnabas financial support to help the believers in Jerusalem, in the mother church, to live and survive through that means, right? And I'm, t I'm telling you this as, as a brother and sister, okay? I'm, I know what it's like to be spoiled, right? I'm the baby of my family, okay? My sister changed my diaper when I was a baby, okay? She did everything for me. She taught me how to be a Christian. She mentored me. Um, it was so easy to just accept, accept, accept. And you know what? Who's a baby here? No, I'm kidding. You know, it's, it's not just on a personal level, but even on a congregational level. I'm telling you right now, as second generation, as a second generation church, we have to stop being babies. Okay? When you see the church of Antioch here, okay? Now, given Antioch was a really big city, 
and there were a lot of people there, and they were, they were fine, right? Um, it's kind of like New York and L.A. Jerusalem and Antioch, it was like New York and L.A., right? So they, people were doing fine. But the thing is, what you see here is that they determined to send relief. Once they heard that they were struggling or that they were going to struggle because of the famine, they decided to help them out, right? And that word determined, it literally means in Greek to set boundaries. In other words, if I were to put that in modern language, that means they budgeted. Because when you budget, you set boundaries. So they budgeted. In their budget, they included giving to those in need. They budgeted their finances in such a way that they had enough to not only live, but to also help those who are in need. Right? Um, this, this is what we see in the first church. We see acts of mercy. They're just beginning to be Christians. Sometimes you think that this is, oh, this is such a mature practice. These are for very solidified, seasoned believers. The church of Antioch just started. They were being called Christians for the first time. And even though they were so spiritually young, they were being defined by repentance. They were marked by discipleship. And they were showing mercy to the mother church. Right? This is what's going on. This is, this is what it means to be defined by grace. And it has nothing to do with how many years you've been at church or been a Christian. Right? I know non-Christians show a lot of mercy financially and otherwise. Right? This is a moving of God in the hearts of all of us. And you know, one of these days, guys, your parents are going to be old. They're going to be super old. You're going to see their physical bodies deteriorate because of age, because of disease. And it's going to break your heart and it's going to wake you up if it hasn't already. I know some of you are very seasoned in dealing with the loss of the loss of the health and even the lives of your parents. But for those of you who still don't know what that is, right? One of these days, you're going to be the adult. And you're going to have to take care of the parents that, you, that are still kind of helping you financially and everything like that. Okay? You have, to, you have to realize that showing mercy to those that we think should help us because they're in a better place, right? That is a mark of grace. That is a mark of grace. Right? And you're saying, whoa, that's not, that's not really grace. Grace is Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Yes, you're right. You believe that grace is Jesus dying on the cross. You are right. But let me echo what James said. Even the demons, demons believe and tremble. Right? And faith without works is dead. So lovingly, as a brother in Christ, I challenge you. Is grace just purely a theology without any kind of works whatsoever? Right? Is it purely a cerebral, intellectual, informational exercise? Right? 
or is it the power of Christ working itself out in you and through you, right? Through repentance, through discipleship, and through mercy. Okay? Does the sacrifice of Christ compel your heart to yearn to live for him? Right? That's the question I want to leave you with today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, there are so many things that distract us, that pull us away from a life that centers upon the gospel, not only in our knowledge and in our theology, but in the very choices that we make in life, our academic choices, our social choices, our familial choices, our career choices, our recreational choices. Heavenly Father, help us to be defined by grace, not just in the tenets that we ascribe to, but in the life that we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.